Hi, everybody. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Um, I've probably told some of you guys this story before, but before Allison and I found this church, um, I'll speak for myself, uh, I was pretty much almost done with church. Not done with God, not done with Jesus, but done with church. We were actually about six months before we found this church, um, or before we started coming regularly, we, we knew of Madison Street. Um, we were looking into house churches uh, because I was tired of the glitz and the glamour of what I call uh, rock star churches. Um, we wanted a church where uh, that passage um, in the epistles where he says some come with a song, some come with a poem, uh, some come with a word. Um, and I, at that time, I thought the only place that can happen is in a house church. Little did I know that it could happen in a church that has a building that looks like a house. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm really excited because just watching the service this morning and everybody coming up and sharing, a church where every member is a minister is what I've been praying for for some time. And it's a, it's a privilege to be up here. So join me in prayer. Father God, we have such a thin understanding of your love for us. Pull back the curtain and reveal to us your great love. Show us the depths of it. Drown us in that love, God. We thank you for that love. And when that love travels the 18 inches from our head to our heart, we will be dancing in the streets, Jesus. God, we confess that without you and the good work that you did for us on the cross and through the resurrection, we deserve your wrath. We were your enemies. We were sinful. We were sick unto death. Father God, I pray that you will continue to bring your word today through the songs and through the poems and through my talking and through the talk back that we have afterwards, God that you'll speak to us because we're eager to hear. And bless me because I'm nervous. <laughs> In Jesus' name, amen. Um, yeah, another little side story about kind of the irony of me being up here. Uh, there was a time in my life I wanted to be a youth minister. And then my freshman year of college, I fell in love with theater. And I thought at the time that I had to choose between being a theater artist or a youth minister. Um, I realize now that that was a false choice, right? Um, I also uh, think it's ironic that I am part of a church where I can come and I can speak and I can present and minister, uh, either through small groups or through leading prayer for offering or through speaking. Um, I'm also a uh, performance professor of theater at an undergraduate university, which basically means I'm a youth minister. <laughs> Uh, so God got me there. It was just a long journey. I'm, I'm, I'm going to rely a lot on my notes this morning because if you ask me to speak for two hours on theater, I can do it. If you ask me to speak for 20 minutes um, on the Word of God, I cling to my notes a little bit. Um, I'll work hard to make sure that my comments will be brief. I want to take us into the Word of God and give us a few powerful truths to reflect on. I'm eager to get to the talk back at the end because I trust that the Holy Spirit will speak to us not only through his word and not only through my talk, but through the community, through the body. 
I'm a firm believer that the Holy Spirit speaks through his body. And I'm eager to hear what the Lord will say to me through you during the talkback. I have titled my talk this morning, The Tension of the Gospel, because I believe that we must hold two powerful truths in tension with each other. These truths seem to be contradictory, but they're not. And if we hope to have the power of living, we must live in the tension between these two truths. We must have a deep head and heart knowledge of our sin. I'm going to say it because we don't say it a lot nowadays. But we must have a deep head and heart knowledge of our sin, our brokenness, and the fallenness of the world. And a deep head and heart knowledge, some would even say a body knowledge, of the love of God for us. If we let go of either of these two poles, we will not only fail to find power in living, we might actually fall into heresy. We might lose the power that can get us through life. So our prayer should always be, God, convict me of my sin and convince me of your love. And in that, we will find power for living. The kingdom. There is much to be done as we build the kingdom of God together. Here in Riverside, in the Inland Empire, in the state of California, our country, and around the world. We must busy ourselves about the business of evangelism, community building, social justice, and cultural renewal. None of these areas of ministry can be neglected or abandoned in favor of one or the other without building a lopsided version of the now but not yet kingdom. There's lots of debates going on in our culture. What should lead? What should we, uh, be the focus of our churches? Should it be evangelism? Should it be community and social justice? Should it be cultural renewal? And God's answer to that is yes. Uh, if we have a church that's built on just evangelism, and we see a lot of that in our culture, we will have churches that are lifeboat churches that have a lot to say about life after death, but very little to say about life before death. If we built our churches just on community and social justice, we rob our community and our social justice of the power, the generator that generates us and moves us into that. It's like we have a solar system, and at the center of that solar system is the gospel. And what a lot of churches that focus on just community and social justice, they remove the sun from that solar system, and they don't expect it to cool down and die. But if we keep the gospel at the center of that solar system, we will keep the power for living. A lot of churches are committed to cultural renewal. They believe that if we just make things beautiful, that the natural outcome to that will be people will be drawn to God. And there's a little bit of truth in that. But if you study history and you study the Third Reich and the Nazis, they were huge fans of beauty. As they moved through country after country, they absorbed the art, the beauty, they loved opera, Wagner. So beauty in and of itself does not lead us to Christ. I would say that beauty in and of itself makes it easier for the gospel to flow. So again, if we focus on any of these elements of building the kingdom of God to the exclusion of the others, we will make a lopsided version of the now but not yet kingdom, and it won't be the full gospel. Uh, we are called to fulfill both the great commission of Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples, 
and our American evangelicalism knows a lot about that. But we're also called to fulfill the cultural mandate of Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. And that subduing of the earth isn't an oppression of the earth. It's as if God laid out all the raw materials in creation and he said, come and create with me. We have been called to be co-creators with the living God. Sometimes people get nervous at the term co-creator, so if that makes you a little bit nervous, just sub-creators. <laughs> it's almost like God is building a cathedral, and he is the master builder. He has all the plans, and he's come up to each of us, and he has said, okay, I want you, go, I want you to focus on the masonry. I want you to focus on the woodwork. I want you to focus on the stained glass. But together, we are building a kingdom. It is the now but not yet kingdom. It started in a garden, the raw materials that the great creator lays out before us, but it's going to end in a city that we co-create with God, the now but not yet kingdom. Many of the things that we do today, not all of them, but many of the things that we do today that we engage in are, are uh, community building, our social justice, our art, our, our business will be in heaven. And if it's not, we won't care because we'll be with Jesus. The only people in heaven that are going to be out of a job are professional pastors. Hallelujah. <laughs> and I look forward to seeing what we're going to build together. I look forward because I know that our arms when we enter heaven aren't going to be empty. They are going to be filled with the things that we bring to the king so that we can continue to build that kingdom. However, the work of the kingdom can be exhausting if we don't engage this work with the power of God. And where can we find this power for living? We find it in grace. I chose that picture specifically uh, because of how explosive it looks. Because I think a lot of times we think of grace as something that helps us cope with life. But actually, if you read the Gospels, Grace is something that helps us change and transform. Everything that we do for the kingdom of God requires the presence and the power of God. It requires the grace of God. And I'm speaking from experience here. Often I am motivated to build the kingdom of God for all kinds of things that have nothing to do with God. Anything that motivates us other than the grace of God will either destroy us or we will destroy it. Let me say that again. Anything that motivates us other than the grace of God will either destroy us or we will destroy it. Even the good things. This organism called the human being was designed to run on the presence and the power of God. It can run on other fuels. I know every morning I wake up and I am tempted to run my life on another fuel other than the grace of God. And it can run, but it can't run without doing some damage to me and to the world around me. Grace is the cleanest burning fuel for living. So, let's try this out, a couple of thought experiments. What if you are motivated in your life for love for your family. It's a good thing, right? And, and we're told often family values, and I believe in that. 
But if what gets you out of bed in the morning is a love for your family, and your family doesn't live up to those expectations, it will crush you. Or if your family does try to live up to those expectations, it will crush them. So we can't be motivated by the love for our family. What if we're motivated uh, because we need approval, because we're searching for significance? I promise you, it will never be enough. You will never feel significant enough. And if you do feel significant enough, you will become a tyrant. What if we're motivated because of social justice? That's what gets us out of the morning, out of bed in the morning. Um, if we can't achieve our social justice, we will live in despair. And what we will learn quickly is that social justice without the gospel sometimes, not all the time, actually leads to tyranny. Many of the political views and the ideas that uh, haunt the world today as evil started off as people trying to seek justice apart from the gospel. This is a big one I struggle with. What if we are motivated by our work? All right? I love the concept of the kingdom of God because I want to build something that's going to last. If God's involved in that, that's okay. Um, I can speak from experience to say that it's never enough, that it crushes me, and in those rare times where I'm actually on top of my work, it crushes the people around me. So we cannot be motivated to do all of these good things, family, a sense of significance, social justice, work. All of these things must be done. They cannot be neglected. But what motivates us to do these things is important. Idolatry is being motivated for living by anything other than the power and the presence of God. Idolatry is when we make a good created thing into an ultimate thing, and I promise you that it will either destroy you or you will, de or it will either destroy you or you will destroy it, even the good things. That was a revelation to me when I, when I first heard this concept about idolatry, because I had always thought idolatry is like, you know, don't do drugs, don't sleep around, don't do those kind of things. But when I learned that even good things can become deadly when they become ultimate things, that suddenly now I've got some work to do. Let's uh, move on to the next slide. Let's, let me uh, read this passage to you because I think it's important as we explore this tension of the gospel. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? This is a picture of the angel blocking the way for Adam and Eve in the garden. 
And one of the things that I think we need to meditate on more as a culture, because it's not popular, because it's been used and abused in wrong ways, but we need to meditate on the fall. That sounds like a backward way to find power for a Christian living, but without the fall and without sin, there is no power, right? Without the fall and without sin, Jesus is just a good moral example, not a savior. And I need a savior. To fully understand and receive the grace of God, we must ask God to pull back the curtain and reveal to us the brokenness of our sinful hearts and how that sinfulness has contributed to the brokenness of his creation. The fall is not a really popular idea nowadays. We don't want to believe that we are little sin-making machines and that we were born that way. I have two small children. Anyone who spent significant time with a two-year-old knows that we are sin-making machines, <laughs> and we were born that way. If there is no fall, there is no good news. Let's reflect on the fall for a little bit. I know it's uncomfortable, but if we can linger here, this might be the pathway to the presence and the power that we seek. Without the presence and the power and the grace of Jesus and the work that he did for us on the cross, all of life, think about this, all of life is a power play. Every relationship that you have right now, apart from the presence and the grace of Jesus, is ultimately a power play. That can be friend and foe. That can be mother and daughter. That can be father and son. That can be boss and employee. That can be government and citizens. Everything is a power play. Now, we may have gotten good at dressing our power plays up and calling it love. But at the end of the day, without the grace and presence of Jesus Christ, it's social Darwinism. It's survival of the fittest. Why did the TV show Survivor resonate with our culture so much? It's because we know at the end of the day, we're afraid of being voted off the island while we're actively trying to vote other people off the island. It's survival of the fittest. It is natural selection. We need the grace, the presence, and the love of God. All around the world, there are wars. These wars have been going on all throughout history. And all around the world, there is sexual violence. We're in the middle of the Me Too movement. Our country, our nation is having to come to terms with that. But without the power and the presence of God, all of life boils down to two things, sex and violence. Because those are the two fastest ways to get power. And ultimately, that is what we want. We are not wounded animals hiding under a tree that the Father is seeking out to take care of. That's not how this passage describes us. This passage, passage describes us as enemies, rebels, insurgents, who must lay down our arms and surrender to the love of Jesus. That's the power of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus really understood the empire and it wasn't just the Roman Empire, it's all empires. It's all about power. And the power of the Sermon on the Mount is he comes in and he turns that empire paradigm on its head and says, no, live this way. Let my love and grace be what motivates you. Because if it's not my love and my grace, it will be power. 
So, another slide, as if it wasn't bad enough. <laughs> Sin. We're really, really uncomfortable with this term. But if we don't deal with this term, we have no forgiveness. I purposely took the slide and drew it out to the edges because I think we need to sit and linger with it. We don't like to talk about our sinfulness. We always want to blame it on society or I, I was born that way or whatever. And those things might be true. It's all tied up together. But we have responsibility. We talk a lot about in this church that we live in a post-Christian world, and I, I actually think that's true. Uh, Christianity is no longer the driving narrative for our culture. But if we live in a post-Christian world, does that mean we also live in a post-sin world? There was a time when you could walk up to somebody in our culture or in the West, and you can say to them, hey, you're screwing up right now. You're being sinful. And they would either say, oh, yeah, you're right. Or they would say, no, I'm not. But they would never say, what's sin? And now we have to take another step back, right, to deal with ourselves. We actually have to believe in sin. Because if there's, not, if there's no sin, then we create our own morality. Truth is relative, right? And you think about where that goes. If Nietzsche was right, and I think culturally, culturally he was, that God is dead, what are the natural implications of that way of thinking? One of the things that strikes me as I study history more and more is we look at somebody like Hitler, and it seems like he flared up out of nowhere. But actually, if you look at the history and the philosophy leading up to Hitler, Hitler is the natural outcome of a world where God is dead. Hitler is a natural outcome where he says the state creates the morality. We don't have to answer to anything on the outside. Hitler was actually, in any other tyrant, plug in any other tyrant that, that does not um, believe in the God of the Bible, believe in sin, Hitler was actually worldview consistent. Because there are many people in our country, in our world, that are deeply moral, but they don't believe in God. And really, that's all that is, is just they're enjoying the residual heat of the sun that has been removed from their universe. But eventually that heat is going to die out because that source is no longer there. We look back on the Greeks and the Romans, and we think it's a very romantic time, the classical times, and there was lots of common grace in the ancient pagan cultures, but they were brutal. Brutal. Because that is the natural outcome when you remove grace from the center. Because, again, without Jesus, it's about power. Without sin and a deep reflection on our sin, there can be no good news. I'm going to say that again. Without sin and a deep reflection on our sin, there can be no good news. So let's get to the good news because sin and the fall kind of depresses us, right? I chose this picture because when we reflect deeply on our sin and deeply on the grace of God, we find power for living. 
Once we have meditated on our sinfulness, we ask the Spirit to reveal to us the depths of God's love for us and how that love was expressed through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. When we realize what the death and resurrection of Jesus has actually saved us from, then we can move out into life and to work and to building the kingdom of God with power and thankfulness and gratitude. Grace, biblically, is defined as undeserved merit. Undeserved merit. And when we realize that we have been showered with undeserved merit, we can move out into life with the power of God. We used to do things so that God or our family or our friends would love us and accept us. Now, in the light of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, we realize that we are loved beyond our wildest dreams and accepted by the God of the universe, the only being whose opinion truly matters. We don't build God's kingdom to get God's love. We rest in God's love, and through gratitude, we find the power to build his kingdom. This is the power of God. This is the power of grace. This is the gospel. So, let's move to the next slide. It's probably my uh, favorite Christian thinker, a pastor of a church I attended when I lived in New York, and maybe one of my favorite quotes because it gets me through the day on many days. Timothy Keller, he says, Here is the gospel. You are more sinful than you ever dared believe. You are more loved than you ever dared hope. If you fall off one side of that horse or the other, you end up in heresy. If you go, you are more sinful than you ever dared believe, and you just stop there, you become a Pharisee. But if you go, oh, you are more loved than you ever dared imagined, and you just stop there, you rob the gospel of all of its power because there was nothing to be saved from in the first place. Our prayer every morning when we're getting out of bed should be, God, convict me of my sin and then convince me of your love. This is a crazy picture. (laughs) I'm going to explain it in a minute. But I just wanted it up there while I reread that passage that we read from this morning. I'm going to stop before I get to all the hard names. (laughs) Genesis 15, 7 through 21. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring to me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all of these things to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other, The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and then a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, 
and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. I had read this passage many times um, and always thought, wow, that's bloody and archaic. Now it's quickly becoming one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Uh, This story is a story of an ancient Near Eastern uh, covenant ceremony that usually takes place between a stronger party and a weaker party. What happens is the weaker party takes the animals, chops them in half, creates a walkway between the animals. The weaker party is the one expected to walk between the carcasses. Because the weaker party is essentially saying to the stronger party, if I do not keep my commitment to you, may I be like these animals, ripped apart, destroyed. The stronger party would not walk through the animals, especially if that stronger party was the god of the universe. Because the god of the universe doesn't need to walk between the the animals, doesn't need to make this covenant, because if he doesn't keep his promises, he's not god. Promise-keeping is kind of a job requisite for God. So when Abraham is going through this ceremony, this isn't weird to Abraham. This is common at the time. He's cutting up the animals. He's creating the walkway that he completely expects to walk through himself. But then we see in verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. The smoking fire pot and the blazing torch are symbolic of God. He doesn't need to walk through. There's no fear that he will not keep his promises, but he walks through anyway. And he says, the God of the universe says to Abraham and he says to us, if I do not keep my promise to you, may I be like these animals, ripped apart and destroyed. Now we expect Abraham to walk through, but he doesn't walk through. God doesn't let him walk through. God says essentially to Abraham, if you do not keep your promises, may I, the God of the universe, be ripped apart and destroyed. And he was. In Jesus Christ, in the crucifixion of Christ, he was ripped apart and destroyed. And as much of a depressing thought as that might be, when you really think about it, it gives us the power for living because that's how much the God of the universe loved us. Abraham made a covenant with God. Abraham worshipped a perfect God that kept his promise. If Abraham broke his promise to God, that same perfect God promised to pay the price for Abraham's sins. And he did in Jesus Christ. God has paid the price for us as well And that thought should have us dancing in the streets. But why doesn't it? Because the gospel, 
the gospel of grace, and this is where I fall down as well. I fall down a lot. The gospel of grace is head knowledge to many of us, but not heart knowledge. It's been said that the longest journey of our life will be the 18 inches from our head to our heart. But praise God, He has given us tools for the journey from the head to the heart. How do we work God's grace into our heart? We use the spiritual disciplines. These are physical things that we do because the gateway to our hearts is our bodies. C.S. Lewis said, I don't feel like praying, but when I get down on my knees, I feel like praying. So if you look at the spiritual disciplines, these aren't intellectual exercises. These are things that we do in our body so that we work the grace of God from our head into our hearts, into our lives. And some of the spiritual disciplines, I'll just list a few, are solitude, physically finding time to be alone, silence, fasting. You ever want to grow in patience? Fast a little bit. It exercises the muscle of patience. Secrecy. Are there things in your life that, that are only between you and God? I, I've heard of artists before that will create works that they consider, this is going to be my masterpiece, and then I'll never to show it to anybody because it is my gift to God. Submission or obedience. Bible study. Worship, both individually and corporate. Prayer, both individually and corporate. Fellowship. Reflection. In service. So, when we meditate on our own sinfulness and then ask God through the death and resurrection of Jesus to forgive us of that sin, we find the power of grace, the only clean burning fuel for life. Once we have an understanding of grace, we then physically work out that grace into our everyday life through the spiritual disciplines. This is what I would call discipleship. I was in a meeting a couple years ago, and it was a meeting of people about to go out on the mission field, and I asked in that meeting the leader, I said, what's discipleship mean? And they said, telling people about Jesus. Okay, we've told them about Jesus. Now what does discipleship mean? Well, then they'll tell people about Jesus. Okay, when do we ever get to the kingdom building? We have citizens for the kingdom now, but are we building that kingdom? And building that kingdom is when we work out the grace of God into every area of our life. This is discipleship. This is grace. This is the power for living. So, here are some talkback questions. What motivates us as individuals in a community to build the kingdom of God around us? And can we be honest that sometimes we are motivated by good things that we have made ultimate things? If we live in a post-Christian culture, does that also mean that we live in a post-sin culture? Sin plus God's love equals grace, unwarranted favor. What happens if we leave out either side of the equation? And unpack that a little bit. And how are we practicing the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life as individuals and as a community. And then, of course, any other thoughts, feelings, and reflections from my talk this morning. Let me pray.
Father God, thank you for your grace. We were like a, uh, a convicted criminal, Jesus, who has committed the most severe crimes. We're about to be executed for those crimes, and we know that we are guilty. And praise God, you snuck into the prison, and you snuck us out, and you died in our place. And now we are out and we are free. And every breakfast should be the best breakfast that we've ever had. Every sunset should be the best sunset we've ever seen. God, I pray that we will tap into your grace. That we will find how worthy and rich the sacrifice that you made for us was. Because that's how much you loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.